Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Resilient Health Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Darren Ingalls. And, you know, I talk so much about food being medicine. And if you've been listening to me talk at any venue, you know, I'm always harping on how important it is that, you know, what you put in your mouth really makes a difference in your health. And my guest today is perfectly suited to talk about this. Her name's Mira Desi. She is a holistic nutritionist and founder of The Ingredient Guru. And she and I are going to talk today about the importance of food, why it's important to eat certain ways and certain things you shouldn't be eating. And then we're going to talk a little bit at the end about how you can prepare yourself for making sure that you have a pantry and cupboard that's full of the right things, should something kind of go sideways. And of course, in the last two years of the pandemic, you know, we know things have gone, it's been a little bit crazy. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the day. So Mira, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I know you're such a champion of healthy eating and helping people really reclaim their wellness through paying attention to what's going on with their body. I'm really glad to add what I consider to be a foundational piece to that. Great. Well, you know, I, I know a lot of us, we, we kind of do what we do because we have our own personal story of what led us here. And I, I think you have a story too. Would you mind kind of just telling everybody a little bit, you know, why do you do what you do? Sure. So for me, my story is that at a certain point, I wound up becoming very, very ill. And as you and I have talked about, I I suspect that part of it is due to Lyme disease. I wound up getting Lyme disease twice and my immune system collapsed. I was diagnosed with five different autoimmune disorders, although we all know autoimmune disorders don't live in little bubbles. Right. It's a spectrum. Uh, but I was so ill, I could not walk up a flight of stairs. I could not raise my arms over my head. I couldn't take care of myself or my family. And as I began to look closer into what was going on, I realized that I had lots of doctors and lots of medications, but nobody was talking to me about my food. And I began to change the way that I ate, removing things that were not food from the diet. And surprisingly, there's so many of those at the grocery store. And as I began to get better, realized that there is this misunderstanding about what we eat. It's not really what we eat. It's what's in what we eat that can be a challenge. And that led me to go back to school, become a nutrition educator, write a book, and begin to talk and share and help people. Wonderful. Well, you know, let's talk off about, you know, like reading labels. I, I think this is one of the things that as a consumer, it makes me a little bit crazy because I don't think, certainly in the United States, that we really have truth in labeling, right? I, I think the EU uh, has much better guidelines on really being forthright about what's in food. As you mentioned, you know, it's not just about the food itself, it's the way it's prepared, it's the way manufactured. And, you know, the labels are supposed to give us, you know, the right information so we can make better decisions about what we put in our mouth. You know, why is it, why is it so confusing when you're reading a label uh, to really get the right information you need to know about, you know, feeding you and your family? You know, that's such a great question. And, and part of the challenge is that, first of all, we're not really taught to read the label or to look at what's there. Food producers use something called front of package labeling. They spend tens of millions of dollars to figure out what are the buzzwords, what are the things that we're interested in. They put all those in the front because they want to misdirect us and keep us from looking at the label. If we do happen to turn that package over and look at the back, most people are only looking at the nutrition facts. So that number piece up at the top. And there are some 
you know, misdirections there as well, because they're allowed to say that there's only so much of something in there. And it turns out that the serving sizes are very misleading. So there's a lot of funny math that we have to go through. And most people don't take the time to sit down and do the math. And then the other part that almost no one looks at is the ingredients at the bottom. And that's where there's a lot of manufacturer misdirection, in part because things hide under something called generally recognized as safe. You know, and we can certainly come back and talk about that, uh, as well as the types of ingredients that are in there. So, for example, one of the biggest things that frustrates me to no end is that they're realizing people are paying attention to how much sugar is in their diet. And so instead of using just sugar, they'll put four, five, seven, you know, eight different kinds of sugar or sweeteners into something because then it's lower and lower on the label and you don't see. Whereas if it was number one ingredient, people might put it back. And then to your point, you know, in Great Britain, they have to put a lot more warning labels about artificial colors, for example. Same thing in Australia. And, you know, a lot of other countries pay more attention to the impact of those ingredients on our body. And they actually have to label that there's a problem or they don't use it. That's the other thing that happens. A lot of American companies manufacture for the EU and they will leave those ingredients out because they don't want to put the disclaimer on there. But because that's not a requirement here, they'll still use it. Yeah, I think a great example is corn syrup. You know, in the United States, because, you know, we don't make sugar in the United States and we have to import it from mostly from Southeast Asia. So corn is a very inexpensive ingredient to use and a very inexpensive sweetener. But I find it, you know, so misleading because they call corn syrup a lot of different names. You know, it's dextrin and maltodextrin and fructose and glucose and sorbitol and molotol. And, you know, when you read an ingredient, you see a sweetener. If they don't tell you more often than not, it's some hybrid of corn syrup. But the fact that it's got a higher glycemic index than cane sugar, it's addictive and they hide it in food, you know, it kind of tells you all you think you need to know about the food manufacturers that, you know, they're trying to get you hooked on the food, right? <laughs> it's just... Absolutely. And, you know, part of the challenge is we're biologically programmed to seek out sugar. Like that's yeah. just something our little lizard brain responds to that. And so they start putting it in things that are savory, crackers, ketchup pickles, you know, things that we don't necessarily mentally associate with being sweet. The challenge is if you're eating that much sugar for your savory foods, how much sweetness do you need for something to be perceived as sweet in order to be a dessert? So we wind up over consuming and that then leads to a whole host of health issues. It can cause inflammation, obviously weight gain, diabetes, cardiovascular health. There's a, a wide range of health issues that are related to overconsumption of sweeteners. Well, I think you just said the buzzword right there is inflammation. And you know, pretty much any chronic disease is tied into some element of inflammation, whether it's you know cardiovascular disease, autoimmune disease, diabetes, obesity. You know, I know that the list is long and distinguished, but maybe highlight now what are some of the the no-no foods out there that are some of the biggest culprits of triggering inflammation? Sure. Well, sugar, of course, we've just touched on it. I'd actually like to talk about one sweetener in particular that seems to limp along under the radar and nobody really pays attention to it. You know, a lot of people have become aware that high fructose corn syrup is really bad for you. Right. It's approximately 55% fructose by volume, super bad for your liver. Definitely not a, not a good choice. 
And there is another ingredient called crystalline fructose. And it tends to hide in things like sports drinks, frozen yogurts, you know, other kinds of things like that. In very simplistic terms, crystalline fructose is simply dehydrated high fructose corn syrup. And it's approximately 90% fructose by volume. So it's way worse than high fructose corn syrup. So that definitely is not a great choice, you know. And one of the other things that we, I encourage people to pay attention to when they're looking at foods simply because they're so bad for us and can cause systemic inflammation is trans fats. Uh, you know, they, they're really not a great choice in part because our body doesn't know how to process them. So anything, anytime you see a label that says hydrogenated or partially hydrogenated, that generally means it's a trans fat. And the part of the challenge is there are studies that show it takes as little as two grams of trans fat to have an impact on cardiovascular health. They are they have been removed from the generally recognized as safe list, but they've not been banned. So they still appear quite regularly in the food supply. Yeah, I, I think it speaks a little bit to the food lobby in the United States. Again, how the rules are so different in the rest of the world. And here we're, we're using things that the rest of the world has considered toxic, carcinogenic, you know, just flat out dangerous. And, you know, I've spent a fair amount of time in Europe and I'm always surprised, you know, again, I, I, I don't, buy these foods, but again, pick up a bag of M&Ms in Europe, the ingredients are completely different. They don't use artificial dye. They don't use corn syrup. I mean, it's still candy, take it for what it's worth, but the fact that it's still a, we'll say healthier version of the same product, uh, you know, even McDonald's, you know, the, the, the Big Mac and McDonald's is not the same as the U.S. because no, no. of the regulation. So I, I think as a consumer, just, you know, eyes wide open that, you know, the food industry has one job and that's to make money. <laughs> you know, they're not absolutely, they not absolutely your health in the least bit. No, no. And, and part of the challenge is we don't always understand. We're not taught this, you know, in growing up in primary education and even in college for many people, we're not taught the impact of, of these kinds of foods or food additives. You know, one of the other things we have to keep in mind is in addition to inflammation, we have to look at gut health because so much of our neurotransmitters and so much of our overall body state is based on the gut. So something like trans fats, they've been shown to hinder dopamine and serotonin production. Well, so much of your your neurotransmitters are manufactured in the gut that if you're eating things that are disrupting the gut or causing a problem and causing inflammation, it just becomes this downward spiral. Yeah. And then it gets compounded by the fact that we now know there's a direct relationship between the gut and the brain that if you get inflammation in the gut through the vagus nerve, it can cause inflammation in the brain. You know, in my practice, I work with a lot of kids with autism and we see this consistently that when kids get into certain foods, almost immediately I and mean, it's not a true allergy but you can yeah. see that neurological impact when they get into certain foods and i would add to your list that artificial dye is a yes. major trigger for mood and behavior problems particularly in children so you know red number five blue lake number two or whatever it is you know our bodies just again they don't process them well and they are major triggers you know for gut and neurological symptoms absolutely you know unfortunately 
you know, this, and this goes back a very long time. So artificial colors are made from a, a petroleum base, essentially. And back in the 1960s, there was a pediatrician, pediatric allergist, Dr. Benjamin Feingold, who discovered that many of his pediatric patients did far better if we removed artificial colors. So here we are all these decades later, and there have been many studies that have repeated his findings, right. including, you know, a landmark study that was published in The Lancet, you know, a number of years ago. And we still include them. You know, our FDA, unfortunately, goes, eh, we're not convinced, but it really is not a great choice. And, and one of the things other studies are looking at now is it turns out that artificial colors are worse for children or people who have attention-related disorders. It certainly stimulates that, that disruption in the brain, but it turns out it's also really bad even for people who don't have those health conditions. It can cause anxiety. It can trigger inattentive behavior. It can be overstimulating. So there's, and there's absolutely no need to have it in the food whatsoever. It provides nothing except a consistent appearance that is easier for the food producer to sell. Yeah, I, I think I've read the most research on tartrazy, which is yellow number five. And, you know, that's what's in Mountain Dew. That's what's in like the standard Gatorade, you know, that fluorescent green yellow, which is does not occur in nature. And uh, again, I think sports drinks may be some of the most guilty of this where, you know, when you see that fluorescent blue and you know, there's nothing in nature that has that natural pigment. So, you know, when you see these colors that that don't occur in nature, it's a dead giveaway. It's got some sort of artificial diet. In it. And like you said, there's absolutely no reason to put it in it other than it gives the manufacturer some consistency and it's product identification. Your brain goes, oh yeah, I know that product. I like it, but. Uh, and and another, another problem is sometimes it's in things that we don't recognize. For example, pickles. A lot of people look at a jar of pickles and they're like, okay, it's pickles. And they don't realize that there's yellow dye, green dye, blue dye in there. Things, foods that are white frequently have blue dye in them because the weird thing about science is blue makes white look whiter. And so you can be eating things that if you're not reading that label, you don't realize and you may think, oh, this doesn't have any color in it. And it turns out, yes, it does. Yeah, I was so disappointed. I, I love pepperoncinis. And I went to store to buy some and literally every single bottle, there is none that I found that's a oh. pepperoncini that does not have uh, yellow number five. That's what makes it that color. Even though there are yellow peppers, uh, which as far as I know, you could probably make it um, mm -hmm. from a yellow pepper with vinegar and salt and whatever else goes in it. But every single one, I mean, I was at Whole Foods, you would think there would be somebody that makes a natural pepperoncini. So if anyone out there is listening and you know of it, please uh, let me know because I love them. But I have not been able to find one that does not have artificial dye in it. It's crazy. Well, yeah, that's amazing. So, you know, <laughs> On the heels of that, how important is it that people eat organic? I mean, it's certainly something I, I I preach in my practice. I think, again, when possible, understanding that for some people financially it can be difficult. But, you know, what's your thoughts on the importance of eating organic? I believe it's really important, you know, and, and like you, I understand there are budgetary constraints with that. The challenge is to it at least begin making that change. And I find that many people, once they begin to add a certain category of organic foods, and we can talk about a couple of those, you know, you figure out what works for you. 
you begin to discover that there's more and more room than you think in order to be able to make these changes. And and part of the reason it's so important is because of the toxic body burden that is the underlying factor that contributes to inflammation for so many people. If we're adding things like pesticides and artificial hormones and you know, all of these other things that wind up showing up so much in our food, then our body has to process them. There's no nutritive value whatsoever. And that just begins to create this sort of downward spiral when it comes to inflammation. I do encourage people to at least begin with the dirty dozen. That's those 12 fruits and vegetables that are most highly contaminated by pesticides. The biggest proviso of that, however, is to follow that all the way down the food chain. So if you're going to take the time and money to purchase organic apples, please also purchase organic applesauce, organic apple juice, organic apple, you know, whatever, and really be mindful about how you are consuming those things, where they're appearing in your diet. And then the next thing, of course, is to look at if if people are consuming dairy to make sure that you're getting dairy that has no added hormones in it. Our, our bodies don't need artificial hormone. And there's a lot of research that shows that it's really not good for us. Yeah. And so for those who are interested, you know, to find the Dirty Dozen, the Environmental Working Group, it's ewg.org. Every year they publish their Dirty Dozen and their Clean 15. So the top 12 sort of most toxic foods, top 15 cleanest foods. And so, yeah, if for people who are on a budget, you know, if you can at least commit to the Dirty Dozen, at least those 12 foods buy organic, you know, when possible. And, you know, and I think it's fascinating too, you know, the largest organic retailers in the United States is Costco and I think Walmart. They are. Yeah. So it's, you know, you don't have to go to Whole Foods. And honestly, since Amazon took over Whole Foods, it's not the same anyway. And I find here in Southern California, I can go to any of the, the chain grocery stores. They all have a very large organic produce section. Their prices are often a lot cheaper than what you would spend at a place like Whole Foods or even Trader Joe's. So it's not as expensive anymore to buy organic. Again, I feel fortunate to live in Southern California where you can grow a lot of things almost year round. So maybe our prices here are a little bit better than if you live in other parts of the world, but it, it again, it doesn't have to break the bank. And I've also advocated just for getting like frozen foods. You can buy frozen organic foods. And although fresh for me is always preferential, it is another way to save money because the frozen version of it often is cheaper than the fresh, but at least it's still clean and organic. Well, and the other thing that I, encourage people if you're willing to purchase frozen, obviously you want to make sure it's just that single ingredient in the package. We don't want sauces. We don't want other things in there, but that can be a great way to extend the season. I do encourage eating seasonally. I think we get the most nutrition and the, the best support that way. But if there are certain foods that your family really likes and wants to have, if you're buying them frozen, they are flash frozen immediately after picking or as close thereafter as they can get them over to the facility. And so you're not buying something that's been stuffed into some sort of a container and then force ripened with ethylene gas or they're not picked underripe so that they can ripen on the 1500 mile journey across country kind of thing. So that's another way to make sure that you're getting the freshest, most nutrient dense products. Yeah. And I think the other thing that's really come out of the research in the last certainly decade is that, you know, organic foods have less glyphosate. Yeah. Glyphosate is a pesticide, you know, it's in a, a 
chemical called Roundup. And, uh, you know, they did a study out here in California a few years back looking at wine in California. And what's scary is that even in the organic wine, it had Roundup, it had glyphosate. And fortunately, it's so heavily used by farmers, certainly in the United States, that it gets into the table water or it gets, I think, into even a lot of organic crops. So when you're eating organic, is it 100% organic? Unfortunately, probably not, but definitely it's going to be a lot less pesticide and herbicide. And again, looking at some of the research on glyphosate, uh, Dr. Stephanie Seneff has done a lot of research on glyphosate, and there's been a very strong association with autism. In fact, I think the association, the, the correlation between the use of glyphosate and the rate of autism, it was something like a 98.6% correlation. Of course, you know what they say, correlation doesn't prove causation, but you know, with this rapid increased rate of autism, it does bear the question of that, is this an environmental influence that may be leading to that? And certainly if you're a pregnant mother and you're getting lots of glyphosate, and of course, these are chemicals we tend to store in our fat tissue. And of course, the baby's brain is just a big glob of fat. You know, it'd be easy for that to accumulate in your baby. So uh, certainly for moms who are considering getting pregnant or are pregnant, I think it's absolutely critical to eat organic for the health of you and your baby. But uh, this glyphosate thing is a little bit frightening. Organic also tends to be more nutrient dense right. because many of the pesticides and herbicides and even fertilizers that are used in conventional growing, you know, the soil gets stripped. Whereas the goal in organic, sustainable, or regenerative farming is to continue to build up that nutrient layer so that the plant has access to lots of nutrients so that when we eat it, we're getting that nutrient benefit. Glyphosate is a chelator, so it binds with things like calcium and iron, and that means the plant can't take it up as easily, so right. there may be less in there as well. And then yeah. another another big thing for kids, sorry, just one more thing. Another big thing for kids, apples especially, a lot of kids tend to eat a lot of applesauce, drink you know, apple juice, that kind of thing. Apples are a huge uptake for arsenic. Right. And so if we're getting organic apples, they're not fertilizing with arsenicals. So you're not going to have hopefully as much. I mean, it does exist in the crust of the earth, so there may be some, but there's not going to be as much as in a conventional operation. Yeah, well, arsenic, yeah, we know it can get into apples, it gets into rice, it gets into you know, other foods. And yeah, I, I guess that's, that's maybe another different topic, but uh, certainly I think as much as you can do organic, again, you're getting more nutrient-dense foods, less chemical exposure, and for really any kind of chronic illness, but even just for good maintenance of health, you know, yes. give your body every opportunity to do what it's designed to do it. Again, I always say it's, it's built into our DNA to heal. We just got to get the obstacles out of the way. So if you are relatively nutritionally depleted or, you know, you're getting loaded with so many chemicals and toxins, it's impairing your body's ability and cells ability to function the way it should, you know, the end result of that is usually some element of ill health. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, I want to kind of close out our conversation. You know, the last two and a half years during the pandemic, I think has been interesting in terms of how people have approached food. I, I've seen in my practice, people go really one of two directions. There were the people that said, you know, either they were furloughed, they lost their job uh, and they said, you know, screw it. I'm going to Netflix and chill and, and just eat, you know, whatever. And I had other people that said, look, I'm at home. I have now more opportunity to cook my own food you know, exercise more, eat better. And so, you know, we really, in my practice, I kind of have these two extremes, but 
you know, there was always this sort of, I think, undertone of conversation, which fortunately never happened. But, you know, when everything started shutting down, I think a lot of us are like, gosh, what happens if they start closing grocery stores down? Or I know what happened in China is that they, you could only go to the store one day a week. You were given a day and that was your day to go. And so what if something like that happens where now our access to food might be limited? And of course, I live here in Southern California, which is earthquake country. So they're always talking about food and water preparedness. That what if we have the big one? What if you don't have access to a store? So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about, you know, how can people start thinking about building their their cupboard and maybe not their fridge so much if you lose power, but how can they start building their pantry so that they're prepared for something that comes along that may be un unforeseen? You know, that's such an important point. And I do actually have a program. It's called the Preparedness Pantry Masterclass. And part of it is, like you said, natural disasters. Like you live in earthquake territory. I live in hurricane territory. So we're guaranteed at least a couple times a year something's going to happen. And you either can't get to the grocery store or they don't have what you need. If you learn how to build a pantry that has what your family needs, you not only don't have to stress as much if there's a shutdown for some sort of natural disaster reason, it also makes sure that, you know, I have been to the grocery store, we all have where certain sections are empty, where the shelves are very thin. If you have what you need at home, you're not as stressed by that. And then the other thing is for anyone who has specific health conditions that require them to eat a way to support their body and their wellness, you have to make sure that you have what you need on hand. And the biggest thing that I encourage people to do is to get into the habit, obviously not for the fresh produce because that only lasts for so long, but in general to learn to shop, to fill your pantry, and then to cook from the pantry. Most people, we've gotten so comfortable with the fact that most of us live, you know, within just a few miles of at least one or two grocery stores. We can run there last minute and just pick something up if we need to. We really need to get out of that habit and learn how to cook from our pantries so that we make sure that we always have what we need. And then we also want to make sure that we're we're rotating it and we're using things that our family wants to eat, you know, because I, I remember during the beginning of COVID, I went to the grocery store and there were almost no dry beans left because lots of people, you know, lots of people like, oh, we should get beans. But if your family does not like beans, they are not going to like you very much if you all of a sudden, and you don't know how to rehydrate them and cook them, like that's a problem. So learn how to build a pantry that's the right fit for your family. Yeah, I think it's a great point. And like you said, for people who have specific dietary restrictions, again, in my practice, that's a lot of my patients where they have celiac disease, they're sensitive to certain foods. And if you're now dependent on someone else providing some dry food, and I can imagine if there were a disaster, you know, you might have easy access to crackers and pasta or something that maybe you're allergic or sensitive to. And that doesn't serve your higher interest. So being aware of what products are available to meet those needs in a disaster is really quite smart. I also, you know, I want to convince people to take the time and effort to build what they want to eat, what their family will enjoy. And please do not buy the $175 bucket of bad ingredients that they sell at the big box store. Like it's just terrible stuff. It's not good for you. And, you know, somehow we think, oh, we need to have this in an emergency. Well, in an emergency, do you really want to eat that? Probably not. Hopefully. Well, uh, 
Well, we're going to drop the link in the show notes. Uh, if people are interested for Mira's uh, Preparedness Pantry Masterclass, so we'll drop the link. I think it, it's, you're going to find it's a great course. It's going to give you a lot of great tips on, again, how to build your pantry specific to your needs, your dietary needs, your family's needs. So God forbid something happens, you guys are prepared and you know exactly what to do. So Mira, I really appreciate uh, you spending time with me today and going through all the ins and outs of foods and food labels. So Cleon, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me here. It was really great to chat with you.